Uh, let's stand together tonight as we reverence reading God's Word in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 11. According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which was committed to my trust, and I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. And may God bless the reading of his word tonight. It's my prayer. You may be seated tonight. We're going to be looking at a message I call the nature of serving Jesus, the nature of serving. And I want to begin by making a statement, salvation and service are inseparably linked in Scripture. We don't have to look any further than the famous Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is a gift to God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For, that means because, in that context, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Salvation and service are inseparably linked in Scripture. Some time ago I heard a preacher make a remark that uh, he said, I'm not sure what the number one spectator sport in America is supposed to be today. But he said it's possible that the number one spectator sport in America is going to church. Now, going to church ain't a sport. That's what I immediately thought. I don't know what you thought. But I understood his point. Uh, Christianity is not really designed to be something that we go and watch somebody else do. Being saved and being a servant are inseparably linked together. I grew up hearing it preached over and over again and seeing it in a lot of mottos, a lot of churches, we're saved to serve. Well, that's not really a bad motto, but I can say it, I think, a little bit more biblically by saying that salvation and service are inseparably linked together in Scripture. And in our text tonight, Paul considers, as he so often did, the truth of the gospel And when he did that, he almost always referred it to himself, which is a natural thing for us to do. We almost all contextualize the gospel in reference to what it did for us. The gospel, you see, is not designed to be put in a a clear box and examined but never touched. Uh, Yeah, man, that's the gospel. Yeah, there it is. I see it. Uh, I I can look at it. I know what it is. I can see it from this side, this side. I can talk about it. No, no, listen. The gospel lives in all of us if we're saved. You see, the gospel comes inside of us and it changes us and transforms us. So it's only natural when Paul begins to talk about the gospel He always talks about what it did for him. That's a good policy for us. Uh, Contextualize the gospel in reference to what it did for us. And again and again, he showed the gratitude that he had that God had saved him. I don't think Paul ever got over the wonder that God could save even him. He referred to himself as the chief of sinners. The chief of sinners. 
unworthy because he said, I persecuted the church of God. I hated the name of Jesus. And yet, he was amazed. God saved him. But then God went further. And he tells us that in this passage that he put me into the ministry. His incredible gratitude then extended beyond his salvation so that he was thankful that God had put him in the ministry. Now, it's easy for us to look at that passage and maybe say, well, you know, I'm glad God put Paul in the ministry too. And, and certainly we are. That's a, that's a good thing for us to think about. And if Paul was glad that God had put him in the ministry, that in itself is a good thing because Paul certainly had an incredible ministry. And I see preachers all the time who struggle through their ministry. And if there's any gladness in it, if there's any joy in it, if there's any thankfulness or appreciation for the ministry, it's often uh, hidden, camouflaged behind a whole lot of complaining about how bad they have it. Oh, it drives me nuts to hear preachers talk about uh, the ministry, like it's some terrible burden. Oh, bless God, the burden's heavy. God, put this terrible burden on my back. I'm in the ministry. My goodness. I tell them, go drive a truck. That was my new. <laughs> no offense to truck drivers. We got some of you out there, but there's something else you could be doing. Paul was thankful that God had put him in the ministry. And I think any preacher ought to be. It's an incredible opportunity to be able to serve Jesus. Thank God, Paul said, that he counted me faithful and put me into the ministry. And I can echo that. But you know, the word that Paul uses in this passage is an unusual word for ministry in the New Testament. It is actually the Greek word diakonos, diakonos. It's the word our word deacon is derived from, and it is actually translated that way most of the time that is used in Scripture. Uh, the word deacon, though, has a classic meaning. The diaconos, the deacon, was a servant, a servant, uh, and, and not a real high servant, but a, a lowly servant, a servant who uh, would do anything. Now, Paul was not saying in this passage that he was a deacon in the sense that he was an Acts chapter 6 kind of person who was a deacon that was selected by the church and then laid hands on by the apostles, by the pastors. And they were set aside then, as all deacons are, uh, to fill that office in the church. And their role then is to serve the church by helping their pastor to fulfill the duties. As you see it in Acts chapter 6, it is not meet, it's not right, it's not fitting, it's not best, they said, that we should leave the Word of God and serve tables. It wasn't that the apostles couldn't serve tables, they could. But if they spent all their time serving tables, then they would not be able to minister the Word the way God intended for them to. So it's not right that we should leave the ministry of the Word and prayer in order to serve tables. And so deacons then are established in the church. And it's a very important office. And uh, they fill that office by serving the people. By doing what? By doing whatever they can. But especially by making sure that people's needs are met. Especially the most needy people 
in the congregation, which in the New Testament time, of course, was the impoverished widows who had nothing, no way to make a living, and were dependent then upon the care that was provided to them by the church. So deacons have that role, and it's a very important role. But Paul was not saying that he had been put aside or set aside as a deacon. No, no, that wasn't what he was saying. He was using that word, though, in its classic sense. And I thank God then that God made me a servant. That God had counted him faithful then and given him the privilege of serving him. In whatever capacity that might have been, in whatever area that might have covered, it's a very general rule that covers a lot of ground. We know Paul as the great evangelist. We know him as the great apologist, the defender of the faith, standing for the truth of the gospel and contending with the Jews and sometimes even contending within uh, within the faith with other Christian people who were teaching wrong things and Paul was a mighty apologist he was a mighty evangelist he was a great missionary he was a mighty preacher we know him as all of those things but never forget Paul spent a whole lot of time making tents making tents for Jesus And in fact, he would use this exact same word as he described how that these own hands, he said, he said, these own my own hands have ministered to my needs and to those with me. You see, uh, Paul was still serving Jesus when he was making tents and making a way for himself and those who were with him. So when their support was lacking. He was able then to keep on in the service of Jesus. You see, there's a lot of things we can do in the service of Jesus Christ. And yes, since we've been asked about it tonight, that may very well include mowing grass and running a weed eater. Now, that may not seem like a most important thing, but let, it, uh, let us go without it for a few weeks or even worse, I have to pay people to do it. And you'll see very quickly how important that is. It's a lot of ways to serve Jesus. A lot of things that may never be in the limelight. But they are vital. And so it's impossible for us to isolate any one specific part of of this that Paul was talking about because he used such a broad word. He was just saying, considering what I was, I'm just thankful That God lets me serve him. Tonight then we'll consider this great insight that Paul gives us about serving Jesus. Learn more about the fulfilling of the responsibility that the Bible so clearly gives us in Ephesians 2. That we are saved unto good works. And we'll first see this play out because Christian service is all about motivation And you see, with the Lord, it's not just about what we do. It's about why we do it. Not just about how we do it. We talk about that, but why? And so he brings up the motivation for our Christian service. And he doesn't make us read a long time to figure it out. He said, I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy. So that the motivation for his service to God was the mercy that he had received. 
And that is the motivation for all Christian service. Why do we serve Jesus? Why can we be happy about serving Jesus? Why can we thank God that he counted us faithful, that he gave us the opportunity to serve him? Why? Why? It's all wrapped up, you see, in our experience of the mercy of God. Paul did not present his service or ours as a matter of manipulation. So that our service is a result of a whole lot of arm twisting and threatening or guilting people into serving. Oh, that's not what it's supposed to be. Uh, sometimes we've even seen our, our service, you know, kind of threatened with the judgment seat of Christ. Boy, are you serving? What are you going to get when you stand before Jesus? Oh, yeah, I can preach that sermon. But that's not why we serve. We're not supposed to be having our arm twisted all the time, manipulated, pushed into it, threatened. Serving out of guilt, guilted into serving. No, those aren't the motivation for our service. Now, I'll admit, let me be quick to point out, that even when everything is at its best, it is possible for our service of the Lord Jesus to become a burden for things to go wrong. That's possible. Paul was talking about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 13. And the context of that passage is that he was talking to them about the offering that they were taking and they'd promised to give and promised to receive for the poor saints at Jerusalem. And so he's bringing that up to them in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. But he's careful to point out, I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened. Because, you see, they could take it that Paul was so guilting them or so pressuring them to give that they might end up giving so much to help somebody else that they themselves wouldn't have enough to make ends meet. That they themselves wouldn't have enough to eat on. That they themselves then were left not being able to pay bills. Paul says, I don't mean to burden you and ease somebody else. Then all we've done is just switch the burden around. Now they're eased, but now you're burdened. He said, no, that's not what it is. But, you see, it can go that way and not just in giving. In this entire concept of Christian service, we must be careful not to burden some so that others should be eased. Paul went on to talk about there should be an equality. He talked about the same thing in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10. So he said, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. As we have opportunity. As we have opportunity. Um, I listened to a documentary this week of a now mostly defunct mega church. And it spoke of how that in this church where tens of thousands of people gathered every Sunday morning. There were people working in the church who were actually having to quit their jobs. Some who couldn't make rent and were losing their apartments and having to move in with others and the people some who were then going without food even, skipping meals. They didn't have enough money to eat on so they could keep working in the church. And this was not a, a small problem. It was a big problem. Even though this was a huge congregation with tens of thousands of people and who knows how much money. These people were sacrificing willfully 
They were giving of their time and to the point that it was burdening them badly, losing their jobs. Then along the way, they began to notice that others in the church, others on staff were living very lavish lifestyle. Some were burdened, but others were eased. And, and that's not the way it's supposed to be. And though that is a perhaps extreme example, it is a very real example. And it's not isolated to just that church that has now gone defunct, and no wonder it did. But I've heard the same story in many other places. We need to ask ourselves, and I've certainly tried to ask myself this week in preparation for this message, are we burdening some so that others can be eased? If we are, and it's very possible that we are, then we all need to think about our service of Jesus Christ. Because if everybody who's saved in this church serves, <laughs> there's going to be plenty of people to do what needs to be done. And nobody will be burdened. So this whole principle of willing service can be abused, and it is sometimes abused, and we don't need for that to happen. And uh, if we get to the place where we have someone that, uh, you know, they're, they're to the point that their service in the church is taking up so much of their time that they can't work anymore, folks, uh, then we need to start paying them. There's a simple solution for that. We can pay them. We can support them. They can enter into what we know as, as, uh, know as vocational ministry. And while that's true, churches have never put everyone who serves on salary. We never have. We never really could. And all the things that we do in this church is largely dependent on our volunteers. So I said all this and brought these things up just to talk about it a little bit to our Sunday night crowd. Remind ourselves then that Paul had eternal gratitude. Considering that what he had done and where he had been, that God didn't just save him, but God allowed him, allowed him to serve. God gave him a chance. And that's our true motivation for service, our gratitude and our love for Jesus Christ. So we can look at that opportunity to serve and be thankful and grateful to have it. And that is born out of our experience then of the mercy of God. Paul said, although I was, I obtained mercy. Although I was this, a persecutor, an injurious person. Though I was this, I obtained mercy. Every person in this building tonight and everybody watching from home can write your own version of what Paul said in this passage. Because we all have a story of although I was this, although I had done this, although I had been this, yet I obtained mercy. Aren't you glad tonight our God is a God of mercy? The God of second chances. He could have put all of us in the penalty box forever. <laughs> Set us on the sideline. You're out. But he didn't. And it is our own then experience with the mercy of God that causes us to want to serve him. My, I can serve heaven's king. I can serve.
So Christian service, according to this passage, is service that's motivated by the mercy of God. But then service means also that we are trusted with the gospel. According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. Now we can certainly see that play out in Paul's life. As he was a preacher of the gospel, he knew that he had been trusted with that truth. And he saw it then as a sacred trust. And we saw how that he took this so seriously that he repeatedly endangered his life and ultimately even gave his life in the defense of the gospel. And he said it, I'm I'm here, I've set myself for the defense of the gospel. And we can see that play out in Paul's own life. But just because we see it that way in Paul's life, and just because maybe we have not been called to do that. You haven't been called to stand before God's people and preach the gospel. You haven't been called as a missionary Okay, but that doesn't mean that you haven't, in your own way, in your own sphere, been trusted with the gospel. Because remember, I told you from the beginning, the gospel is not uh, something we put in a box and set up on a shelf. The gospel is personalized in us all. When you go to work tomorrow, you carry the gospel with you. When you go to the grocery store, you carry the gospel with you. You go out to eat tonight, you carry the gospel with you. Wherever we go, we've been, we are carrying the gospel with us. One of our greatest concerns about the gospel is seeing how, how few have any sense of urgency, any feeling of being compelled about sharing the gospel or even understanding that God has trusted us with the gospel. It's a great passage in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27. Paul said, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. And I've, I've told you before, things are becoming to us. That's something that looks good on it. You see somebody that has a new dress or a new hairstyle and you say, well, that's very becoming. What are you saying? That looks good on you. So he's saying, you let your lifestyle, your conversation, the way you live, the way you talk, the way you act, the way you do your business, let your conversation be becoming to the gospel. What a great challenge that is for us all. Why? Because we carry it with us all the time. It's not like we can go home tonight and take the gospel off and put it in the closet and hang it up with our our suit and tie. No, we can't do that. We carry the gospel with us all the time, everywhere we go. Every time you clock in at work, God has trusted you with the gospel. Your life, your words, your your work ethic, your involvement with others, it's a constant act of service and ministry. So this concept of Christian service means, first of all, that we understand we are motivated by the mercy of God. But then secondly, this concept of Christian service means that God has trusted us with the gospel. And every act of service, no matter how big or how small, whether it's noticed or unnoticed... Every act of service, our entire life of service is all built around the truth of the mercy of God, number one. And number two, that God has trusted us with the gospel. And then there's one more (laughs) great point that he makes here. And that is that not only is Christian service motivated by mercy, Christian service means that we're entrusted with the gospel. But Christian service means that we are equipped by the Spirit of God. Amen. Amen. 
Thank you, God. He didn't leave us to do this on our own. According to the glorious gospel, verse 11, of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust, and I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. The word Paul used for empowered in this pattern, or enabled, means to be empowered on the inside, a power that comes from within. Uh, That is to say that it could be contrasted with our innate talents or our gifts. We may, for example, look at a person and say, oh, man, they're just so personable. Man, they never meet a stranger. They just got that personality. Man, just look at that smile. They're skinny. They're young. They're good looking. They can talk to anybody. Man, look at that. It's no wonder. Look at how God can use them. Look at how talented they are, how gifted they are. Somebody else may can sing. Someone else might have some other great talent. We say, oh, man, look at how God can use them. Look at how talented they are. But remember that Jesus told us that parable of the talents. Remember that? Somebody had ten. Somebody had five. Somebody had one. Uh, You see, they, they, they weren't judged just on the quantity of what they had done, but the quality. They were judged on the basis of what they did with what they had to do with. And that may not be good English, but it's good preaching. What have you done with what you had to do with? That's how God judges us. And the fact is that on the inside of us, there's that mighty power of the Spirit of God. God knows what he's working with. (laughs) He does. He knows us well. And he enables us so that as we are entrusted with the gospel, we are also, thank God, we're equipped by the Spirit of God. A couple of great passages to remember. 1 Corinthians one twenty-seven. God hath chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And he tells us why he did that, so that no flesh should glory in his presence. And after we strip everything aside and we boil that passage down and we look right down to the bottom and see what's left, it means that God can use you. God can use you. God can use you. He knows what you are. He knows what you're not. But it's not all about what you are. And it's not all about what you're not. Because the mighty spirit of God works in you. To enable you. That's why he could say uh, in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 13. That God works in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And that was a big thing because Paul had said in Romans chapter 7 verse 18. To will is present with me. But how to perform that which is good I find not. So as he's discussing there for a while about how the law is one thing and he serves the law. But he wants to do this but he doesn't do it. And he he doesn't want to do this and he does it anyway. And the will is within me. But how to do it? Well he answered that question in Romans chapter 8. As he spoke over and over again of the power of the spirit. He'd learned. So that it is God that works in us both to will and to do his good pleasure. Sometimes, you know, when it comes to our service of the Lord, we may have to face the reality 
of our feelings. I just don't want to anymore. But we must not settle down there, folks. And say, well, my want to is gone. Because the truth of Ephesians 2.10 has not changed. We are created in Christ Jesus unto good works. God has saved us. And our salvation and our service are inseparable. So if we find ourselves getting to where we don't feel like serving anymore, it's probably time to ask God to make us feel like serving again. And I say that on the basis of Philippians 2.13, which says that God will work in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. If God has a task for you to perform, God has the way, the means at his disposal to make you want to do it. And if we'd all think a little bit more about the incredible mercy that God has given us, then the opportunity to serve will look a lot better to us. One more thing and we're done. It's also a time for us to consider what Jesus said in Mark 6. When he said to the disciples, he looked at them and he said, hey, they didn't even have time to eat. There were so many people coming, so many people needed to be healed, so many people needed to learn more about Jesus. I mean, you can imagine, especially with that incredible, miraculous ministry of healing that they were performing. You could imagine what it would be like. If you could heal anybody of any sickness, how busy do you think you'd be in Cabot, America? How many people would be lined up waiting for you? Could you ever look at them and say, no, I'm done for the day. We close at three. Sorry. Come back. Could you do that? He looked at the apostles and he saw that there were so many people coming to them. They didn't even have time to eat. They did not have time to rest. And so Jesus intervened. Mark chapter 6. And he said, come ye apart into a desert place that you may rest a little while. Which is a passage that gave rise to the saying, if you don't come apart, you'll come apart. (laughs) And that's the truth. I hope you can figure out that if you don't come apart, you'll come apart. Come you apart into a desert place that you may rest a little while. We may find ourselves from time to time needing a break. I need some rest. I understand. Take it. Take it. God himself made time for rest. Amen? Jesus made time for rest. He did. But God help us, it's easy to get used to resting. Isn't it? Do any of us get to the end of our vacation and think, man, these days have just drugged by. Thank God this vacation time is over so I can get back to work. Is that the way we say or do we always say, man, I can't believe this week has flown by. I can't believe it. It's already over. 
It's easy to get used to resting. So we always remember that Jesus also told us to work for the night is coming when no man can work. But now just balance. What incredible balance God wrote into his word. Just think about that. That Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with only three and a half years to work with, with his apostles facing the need of an entire world and seeing them just working themselves to death, literally, just going at it all the time. He said, come apart and rest. How could they rest in the face of such an incredible need? They had to rest. They had to. But he also told them, work for the night is coming when no man can work. And so we balance those things in life. We don't let ourselves get used to resting. We remember that the work is always there. And there's a place for us to serve. That Jesus Christ has saved us unto good works. The nature tonight of Christian service is motivated, motivated. By our, the mercy of God. Equipped by the Spirit of God. What a, what a great discussion Paul has given us of Christian service. Let's stand together, please.